My name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Fishing is a brilliant, healthy outdoor pastime. Lots of people say so, and everyone at some stage in their lives should give it a go. The problem is that even now in 2014, with all the understanding, adaptation and willingness there is out there to facilitate equal opportunities for all, there's still a very long way to go for some areas of disability, and also, it has to be said, within some branches of fishing. To explore this topic in a full and meaningful way, I'm linking up here with British Disabled Angling Association President Terry Morsley, who for the past 30 odd years has fought tirelessly, and continues to do so, for disabled angling opportunities right across the UK. Now the picture most able-bodied anglers conjure up of a disabled angler is of someone fishing from a wheelchair. But is there a single all-consuming definition? Or is it viewed in a similar way to how the International Olympic Committee see things as having different categories which are separated off? So to kick things off, define for us the term disabled in an angling context. Basically anybody that needs physical help at home is classed as having a disability under the new Equality Act of uh, 2010. So if you need help in everyday sort of jobs, sort of washing, dressing and, and things like that, you would be classed now as having a disability. In angling itself, there actually is no definition of a disability because we don't have classifications like the IOC. There's no classifications, there's no segregation or the classification system or categorisation. That's something that needs to be looked at by the competitions committee within the Angling Trust. So at this moment in time, we can only use the government stance and the government stance on this is anybody that has a physical need or can't do the same things they would do- normally do at home without help would be classed as a disability. It would be completely wrong for me to even attempt to imagine the difficulties disabled anglers have to face, and to a declining level these days still have to face, so I won't even try. But what I can say is that even with my limited appreciation of what's needed, I've witnessed very definite instances where things have actually taken a backward step. Where I live in Lancashire, for example, we have a stretch of the file course with a flat accessible concrete pathway from which the high water fishing, and particularly in the winter, can be exceptionally good. The perfect spot for both able-bodied and disabled access along more than a mile or so of productive fishing. So what do they do? Why a borough council who governed the area decided to line the entire high water line with huge boulders to take all the energy out of the waves as a coastal protection measure, removing any hope of retrieving terminal tackle or fish from the concrete at a stroke. I attended meetings with the engineers involved fighting the corner for all potential users, suggesting what I thought was a wide range of workable fishable alternatives and ideas. They, for their part, listened. And as expected, the heavy machines moved in a couple of months ago and the work got well underway. But at least they sat down with us, unlike Morecambe just up the way, who engineered a similar project without any appropriate stakeholder consultation at all. I've no doubt that you could throw in a whole heap of similar examples of your own. What then is the real current state of play? Are the people who can really affect change truly listening and facilitating it? Or are they, like the Wyoborough Council case I just cited, simply paying lip service? As you said there, they're paying it lip service. The basis is that what they'll do is they'll look at a project that they want to do. They'll prioritise it on what they want out of it 
and they won't consider the benefits that they're removing, in fact, from people from the local community and tourism. So, in the one hand, what they'll do is they'll look at the problem, they'll pay lip service and say, yes, we'll look into it, where they don't. And this is a national problem. This is not just like you were mentioning about your episode up, up by yourself. But this is a national problem where a lot of local councils, they don't liaise with the local communities. They might liaise with the disabled community, but they won't relate to a sports body. So they just think automatically that it's not used and it's, it's basically there for a leisure facility. We don't need it anymore. What we'll do is we'll, we'll say, yeah, okay then, but there's not enough people using it. Therefore, what we'll do is we'll close off any benefit that that had to that people. There's no alternative way to appeal to say, listen, you didn't listen to what we said. And if you did listen, what was the outcome of what you actually researched from our question? And they don't do that. They just ignore it. As I said, you've been fighting this kind of injustice for the best part of 40 years. So give us a potted history of that fight. I suppose my angling life started when I was just like anybody else. is like a kid. I suppose it's a Mr. Crabtree story. You know, your uncle goes out and goes fishing. You're sitting on the bank watching him, bored to tears, breaking his crow quill floats up and things like that. And he decides to give you a go to stop you getting into mischief and walking off and him being able to enjoy his fishing. So he started off probably when I was about, I don't know, about five years of age on the River Mule in Powys. And I'd just sit there fishing along, catching a few chub and things like that. And absolutely, once I'd caught the first one, that was me hooked. Then I'd be looking for the old bullheads under the rocks in the River Severn. And, and it, it progressed up to the point where I'd catch a bus 25 mile from Walsall in the West Midlands down to Bridge North to fish the famous River Severn at Hampton Lode and the barbel runs where they used to have like the Birmingham Angler Association waters. And I'd get on a bus with all my kit in sweltering heat and it's like a 50 mile trek on a bus just to go fishing. And once you've got that bug, I think it never leaves you. From my part, what happened was as I got older, unlike what normally happens is like you get to an interest in girls and drinking and pubs and clubs and cars. I didn't have that because I went into the army at sort of 16 as a boy soldier. And then I passed out and joined into the parachute regiment. So I didn't get that chance to look at the, uh, the cars and the girls and stuff like that, apart from when I was on leave. But my angling suffered at that point because there's not that much recreation time to get into the fishing side of it. So I had a bit of a break for probably five or six years whilst I was training and and serving and stuff. When I got injured, I sort of had a a rugby accident and I I had a spinal injury. I had 12 months off in a military hospital and it gave me time to um, think about what I wanted to do. There were some other guys in there that was in the army fishing teams. I didn't even know the forces had fishing teams. I just thought you went in there uh, marching up and down and sort of like serving your country and doing the PT and going to the gym each day and prayed. I thought it was all about that. But the recreation side of it in the army, I found out only by being in the hospital that there was quite this big active forces angling groups in the RAF and the army and, and the navy, etc., This guy sort of took me under his wing, if you like, while I was in the hospital, and he was telling me about all these things where he fishes in uh, the RF base in Akrotori, the lads in Aldershot where they've got all these lakes and that on Salisbury Plain. They can do their fishing and that. And I just thought, I've never heard of any of this. So 
it gave me that bit more insight to think, well, yeah, I'm injured now. I'm not going to be able to do a lot. But of all the things that I probably could do, I wouldn't mind getting back into the sport that I used to enjoy when I was a kid down at Hiley on the River Severn, fishing with my uncles in the local ponds in Sutton Park or down at Abermule. And it led to me sort of, when I come home, having a bit of a big chip on my shoulder, if you like, which I think every disabled person must go through. I know the ones that I've spoken to. They've got this initial chip on the shoulder, why me? And I can't do anything anymore. You get rid of that chip, and all of a sudden, everything becomes a lot clearer, and you say, right, what can I do now? And that was the point where I decided that I'd do something about my life, if you like. So from the early days in the 70s, sort of going into the whole disability phase, it was like, what can I do that's going to be a worthwhile thing as a a disabled person? But being, it's hard to explain, but being a bloke walking around with a rifle with superhuman sort of strengths as a member of the paras, and then being in a wheelchair, it's it's so polarised, completely different lives that it was hard to try and work out how I was going to bring that same eliteness that I had in the army out in this civil life, in this new disabled life that I'd got. And I thought, the only way I can do it is by tackling angling and fishing from the start. So I started off in sort of fishing for the local clubs, disabled clubs that I'd found. There was only one or two scattered about, late 70s, early 80s. And then I went on to run that club. And then I'd enter the different matches, you know, I'd sort of like go into the disabled matches and I'd start fishing with those. And then I'd realise that there was not a lot out there for disabled people to compete. There was the, Ari's doing well, pat him on the head, he's having a nice day. But I wanted more of a challenge. I wanted to fish against other disabled people that had similar impairments and mobility impairments as myself. So the only way that I could do that was by creating them. So we went through the motions of like getting me out there so people could understand the issues. And the only way you can get out there is actually by putting your name forward, if you like, and volunteering for things. Like I worked back in the 80s with Annika Rice doing the old Challenge Annika thing. And we built a lake for the community in uh, Wolverhampton in Albrighton. I mean, that's huge now. You know, to look back at that and see what I helped create... I mean, the trust runs on its own, it's nothing to do with me. But that initial filming was so good, it allowed me to look at how you design pathways, how you design the best access. There were so many different things. So then I, I went on and, you know, I started entering mainstream competitions and also the other disabled competitions such as Cala, when the old National Federation of Anglers used to have sponsorship by Cala Gas. I come fifth. But to me, as a youngster, to come fifth, in a competition that I didn't really think I was any good at, but I used to like fishing. That spurred me on, and I wanted more. So then I went in and you know started fishing things like the JCB Disabled Open back in 94, and I won that. And that taste for winning, it continues. It, it, never, it never dies. It's sort of like, it's not money, it's status. And once you start doing that, it, it was basically, right, I need more. So then I went for trials with the National Federation of Anglers. They were looking for people to fish for what they called the home counties at the time. So there was the four nations. There was England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. And you had to go for a trial and fish against other guys that had got disabilities and see if you could actually be as good as them 
and pick the best for the best to actually fish in, in major competitions. And uh, a bit of a shock to myself, I actually turned out to what I thought was normal angling actually turned out to be, without blowing your trumpet, was like a little bit more extra. The watercraft knowledge that I had wasn't just fishing. It was a whole understanding about the water, about what you know, the conditions and all the other stuff. And it helped. So I got through to that. I was selected. And then I fished a number of those disability competitions, which led me then to be noticed by Sky Sports and Keith Arthur and the Tight Lines team. You know, they contacted me and asked me if I'd do some films on disability because they'd never been done in angling. So that was back in 97. At the same time, I organised huge promotion events, such as there was a big maggot competition that we had in Rotherham. And what we did, we got all the England guys in wheelchairs. This is the seniors, the likes of Dickie Carr and Ivan Marks and, you know, Ian Eaps, or Dennis White, Alan Scothorn. All those people we had in wheelchairs, and then I got our disabled team to fish in wheelchairs as well. So it was all on the same playing level. We got Sky to come in, and basically what we did was we shown public via the television media that it's irrelevant what you sat in as a mobility piece of equipment. It's what you can do physically against the other people. And we thrashed the England seniors because we already knew what it was like to fish in a wheelchair, and they hadn't got a clue. So... They found it really difficult with this new element that they'd actually had to comprehend. They couldn't even push the wheelchair, never mind sit and hold the roach poles and things like that. So we had an advantage straight away. And it gave us this new respect that we gained off the angling fraternity just by getting in touch with Sky and putting myself forward and, and just saying, right, want to do this. It went from there. It's it sort of like I got pre-selected in 97 to fish the home internationals against Wales. And, and we won that. I was then 98. I got invited back again. And then the environment agency sort of gave me a ring and said, listen, you know, every time we sort of look for somebody to do with connected with disability, your name keeps cropping up. It wasn't really intentional to be that way because it was about disabled people being able to phone me up. I never even knew what the environment agency was. I still worked on the old National Rivers Authority and Seven Trent and stuff like that. So, for somebody like the Environment Agency phoned me up in them days, it, it was like, well, who are these guys? Because they were new coming in as well as the old Rivers authorities was going out. So um, we had a chat with the top people in, in the uh, Environment Agency, and they asked me if I would become their consultant and advisor on anything to do with disability and access and facilities. And I said, I can only give you from my point of view, from a, from a person's point of view in a wheelchair. I can't really tell you what it's like for a visually impaired person, etc. So they said, yeah, no, it'd be great. If you could just advise us, because we don't know anything about disability, which surprised me back in the uh, the late 90s. That's quite shocking to think that the guys that's running our country is probably a bit like your people up on the council up in uh, North Floyd. Don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to a particular subject. So, you know, that was, that was a, bit, a bit of a shock, but, you know, welcome. 98, I went on to uh, be invited to fish the Welsh Disabled Nationals as a guest up at Ian Eaps's fishery. And not only did I win the competition, but I actually broke the pool record. I think it was something about £112 of fish or something like that in four hours, which uh, delighted me, but it didn't delight my Welsh host very much. <laughs> but apparently I wasn't allowed to take the trophy, but I could take the cart pole and, and the uh, the money that was put up towards that. But I donated the money back to the team because I just thought it was a bit of a cheat, taking the guy's money. But I, I enjoyed every minute. 
also in 98 it was like three day angling festivals and you had to qualify very much like uh, motor racing where you have stages so you have to do your fish stage one and then if you if you qualify for that you get stage through etc which I did and I went down and these places I'd never fished before so I fished it exactly the same that I would fish any other commercial type pool and what I've learned is all these pools are exactly the same the dugout commercial pools that are dug out from a field they all fish exactly the same and it doesn't matter which one you go to if you understand how they work then you will always frame and that was the key to my success was i knew when the fish were were, were going to be in the edge i knew when they were going to be out in the middle or up in the water or down depending on the seasons and i understood then that it wasn't just fishing it was the knowledge of the surroundings and the water and the, and then the topography of the lake and all that sort of stuff. And you have to put it all together and preparation and practice. So from the Broadacres one in, in 98, I then went on to get invited to a Stoke on Trent disabled uh, invitation. They've got sort of 80 odd anglers there. And uh, I won that one with my team. 99. I decided that there isn't a great deal done for kids with disability and there still isn't which is a crying shame but there was nothing there was like lots of adults that that had got disabilities that have probably had the disability since they were born there wasn't many there that had actually had accidents or work-related injuries it was a lot of genetic um you know polio and things like that that was out back in those days and I noticed that they were all the same age range. They were all around 30 to 45 and a few older ones. But there was nothing under that 30, you know, age group. And I couldn't understand why. So, you know, I basically asked and they said, well, no kids want to do it. And I said, well, have you ever asked? And I said, well, we wouldn't know who to contact. This is the governing bodies of the, of the time. We wouldn't know who to contact to ask if kids wanted to do it. And I said, well, it's easy. Every, every council has got a list of like what they used to call special schools then. And you can just go in there and take yourself and invite yourself and, you know, give them a call and, and ask, would your kids like to have a go at fishing? And no, no, we we couldn't do that. So anyway, uh, I took it on myself with my organisation, uh, British Disabled Angling Association, that we'd do that. So the first time we got all these coaches and we, you know, we raised a huge amount of money to be able to make the day work. It wasn't about who we could pay, but what we could get to make sure that this day was absolutely perfect. So we had about 80 disabled children, and they ranged from being on a walking frame or being in an electric wheelchair or actually a hospital bed. We had one young girl came in a hospital bed. She was about 12 years of age. We built a special platform and stuff like that, and she caught fish. Never done it before, but the smile was worth a million pounds. It was worth more than that day. It was worth more than all the trophies and things like that that I've ever won. And from that day, back in 1999, that sort of spurred on the fact that I wanted to do more in angling for kids and stuff. I went on also in 1999 to be invited to other matches like the Way Valley Disabled Match down in Surrey. I got selected for my first international duty. We did the home counties, which was like England and and Wales, Scotland, etc. But this one was the big one. It was the first big one. And it was fishing the World Championships in Belgium on the Canal Mars in Liège. And it was like, this is the real sort of top of the tree Paralympic type event. 
And it was the first one of its kind. It was an experience. It was an experience in many ways, as in the element of disability access and facilities and the needs of those hadn't been taken into consideration, but that's a learning curve. And what we needed to do when we were out there. So it gave me an insight to what was available in Europe as well as what was available in the UK in terms of access and facilities and what other countries get that we don't. And it wasn't much dissimilar to England, that there wasn't a lot of facilities out there, but what was out there in Europe was better than what we had. And in the States, theirs was, as always, far better than our own were. So fishing for that first one in 1999 in Belgium kicked off a whole international element of, I need to work in other areas other than the UK, and widen the scope about and find out about what other countries do and how they change it and what their legislation is. I was also fortunate enough, because I got through to, to fish in Belgium for the NFA and the international team, which we, as a team, we got a bronze medal, which hasn't been achieved since that date by any other team in the current sort of angling world, to then be sponsored by a company called Browning. And... I just thought that was really good. It wasn't financial, it was equipment. But the good part about it was that at that time, what was happening was that there were only three people. There was Bob Nudd, Dave Vincent, and me. And for myself and Dave Vincent, and especially Bob Nudd, to be the only three people that were sponsored by Browning back in that time, it was quite a team of highly respected family names in Angling. And part of that stable just made me very proud and then I realized that like I was the first person that was actually ever sponsored by a, a tackle company in that way there's a few more that have done it since for equipment and that but that was just sort of a it was a big thing for me to be uh, the first person in England to be sponsored by a company that continued for a number of years we then had to look at right okay then you're now fishing international but there are also still the national competitions, the domestic-type competitions. So in order to keep my sponsorship now, I also had to fish more competition. So the uh, National Federation of Anglers in 99, they had a competition on the South Island Drain over Peterborough Way, and I think there was 120 anglers. I fished that and won it, which was... It was a shock because... On the drain, you've got lots of people standing on the top of the bank, and on the bottom of the, the bank, you've got the drain itself. And you can't actually see the next competitor. So unless you're on the top looking down, you can't imagine this long, huge line of people with various impairments, some in wheelchairs, some blind, some with just sort of walking sticks and things like that. But hundreds of people sat down to fish this competition. And when you're finished and you sit back, you think, well, I've had a good day. And then they go, right, okay, then, and they announce the, the winner and they call your name. You don't expect that. You don't go out to win. You go out to do your best. And if you win, it's a bonus. So that's the part that I enjoyed more than anything was fishing that disabled national and getting the NFA cap and the trophies and things like that. And the recognition because your name goes on, on that national trophy. Unfortunately, the NFA doesn't exist anymore. I was taken over by the Angling Trust, but I know that that trophy must be sitting around somewhere. So from the South Island Drain and actually winning that, and knowing I was now the number one disabled in England, and that was my sort of like, 
I'd earned that. I felt I'd earned it. It wasn't luck. It was time. It was effort. It was a whole load of different elements had come together and sort of allowed me to concentrate on the fishing. And as I said, it's not about just turning up and chucking your line in and seeing how many fish you get. It's meticulous planning helped me to actually win that competition. But I didn't go with the intention to win it. I went to the intention of doing my very best. From that, I don't actually know how that these media people, whether it's because they read the angling press or whether it's because of something else, but all of a sudden, tight lines come back to me and said, right, we'd like to do something on disability. And as you seem to be the person that's sort of succeeding at this present time or at this current time and the person to talk to, we'd like to do something so... Sky Sports is supporting disability. Now, to me, that was a step up, because it's not about, although it's featuring me, it's not about me. It's highlighting the disability element. So it's not, this is a story about Terry Mosley. This was a story about disability. And the film that we did at that particular time, that one of several films that I've done with them, highlighted what was on fisheries and what wasn't on fisheries. And what we had to do was we visited a fishery that we knew that we would be able to get to on some things and others we wouldn't so it wasn't an intention to rubbish the fishery but it was there to highlight what good he'd done by putting facilities in but where he could improve and we used the show and the fishing and then the studio sort of live part of it to get the questions after we showed the film and that just sparked a whole new arena for me because then you've got like disability magazines writing to you and companies writing to you and saying, we need help with this, we need advice with that, we don't know about this. And that's the point when I realised that there was no guidelines. There's no guidelines in angling for anybody to follow. So all the people that have got like all the clubs and the, and the fishery owners, it's not their fault that there's no access it's not their fault that there's little facilities because there was nothing out there to tell them what to do. The law said, back in 95, that you had to provide a certain level of access and facilities to disabled people, but they didn't tell them how to do it. So it's not their fault. They didn't give them the money, so it's not their fault. And I thought, well, hang on a bit. This film we've just done with tight lines. It's shown me that we need to provide some sort of guidance for them. So that started back in 99. That started my head thinking and later on we, we did something about that in 2000 i got another bronze team win in italy for the first world games which i was selected for 2000 again the angling times actually run this campaign and i don't know whether once again it's because your face is in the media quite a lot and i was nominated by the readers of angling times for what they called then was the dick walker award for services to disability angling I've still got the award. I mean, I look at it on a daily basis. It's a big bronze figure of Dick Walker, the stalwart of angling. And it was just so good to get that, in a way, so them saying thank you for starting the ball rolling for an improvement process. And the stuff that I thought that I was doing because I enjoyed it and other people saw it as, well, you're doing it because you're campaigning and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, no, it's just helping improve people's lives i don't think of it in any other way than that in 2000 as well the nfa at the time was struggling for money as all organizations struggle for money 
And it was a case that what would happen that was if we didn't get some sort of sponsorship in for the England team, the England team wouldn't be able to go and sort of fish for their country. And I thought that was tragic. So I brokered the first deal for sponsorship for disability to come into angling. And that made it, instead of angling being this internal machine, it allowed the governing bodies to step outside the angling circle, if you like, instead of going to Shakespeare, Leader, etc., etc., Brown in Dyer, etc., for money, they stepped outside of that. And they were able to go to sort of pharmaceutical companies and chemical companies and people who make the drugs that disabled people use and take, wheelchair companies, etc., and say, listen, is there any chance that you'd consider sponsoring the England team because of this? Because after all, although Anglin's a multi-million pound business, there isn't a lot of money to spread between all the people that want a share of the profits that's in there. So you have to step outside the rings. And I was quite proud that I was able to do that back in sort of the 2000 era, the millennium. I went on to win a, a few matches in there. Top Mix with the big concrete people. They held some quite large national matches and, and I won them. Back in 2000, I went back to disability with Sky Sports. I actually got nominated in 2001 for the New Year's Honours List for services to angling in Warsaw, which is where I live. Selected for the list of competitions, competitors in Portugal. So this is my third. I fished Belgium, which is my initial one. Italy, my second one. And then this third one, Portugal, was my final approach to angling at that time. Because I didn't think that the team was being managed in the correct way. And that's my personal opinion rather than an official stance by British Disabled Angling Association, if you like. I didn't like the way the team was being managed, coached, etc., and their welfare. So I decided after that World Championship, that was my end of my international career. And I did that live on tight lines and gave the reasons why I did that. 2001, there was a number of things. You know, Chatsworth Game Fair, and we were in disability exhibitions. Not just like a stand that you'd have at a fate or something, but you actually took equipment and you're showing people how you can get on to fishing lakes, what sort of adaptions you can attach to wheelchairs and things like that, and how you can actually be part of it. So it's more promotion of angling rather than just like a tombola store. We're also in 2001, I actually become a, a full-time consultant in a voluntary capacity rather than a paid capacity. I don't work, and the reason I don't work is because obviously my sort of injuries through the army and stuff like that, so I get looked after by the army, but there was a need for somebody to go forward and do more things. And you can't do that by just saying, well, I'm disabled, so therefore I know what I'm talking about. So I had to go for qualifications and training. And I did that with an organisation called the Centre of Accessible Environments in London, who trained lots of people in sort of building regulations, planning departments, about disability, from the lighting, the acoustics in the building to not just ramps and the stairs and steps and handrails, it's such a bigger holistic approach that they use that, for a pun, it opened my eyes. So I started doing the training. I uh, passed the training at that time. And then from that, I was able to sort of look at things in a different way. So organisations started putting you down as like, well, can we use you in our public relations? So there's various competitions. There was various elements to that outside of angling people would contact me and say like motability would say 
would you come and launch this vehicle? Or would you come and open this art gallery or something like that? No idea why, but they just did it. You become like a public relations officer for your own organisation. And as long as you go as BDAA rather than Terry Mosley and up the ego, it's then promoting the organisation you're working for rather than you as an individual. So all that started to kick off in about 2001. By then, Fishermania, that was run by Barry Hearn at the time, he's managed by the Angling Trust now, they asked me to go in and help them so people with disabilities can actually fish as well. Unfortunately, that's still not the case where it should be easy for people to be able to get into any of these senior competitions, major televised competitions, whether you've got a disability or not, or have a separate event and still today although i sort of you know have contact with them that's never really happened but it looked good at the time if you like as having an advisor on there and as as an organizer it's sort of things move forward and rather than me being like terry mosley and lots of calls coming in and saying can you do this that and the other we had, we had this organization or we had a group of people, if you like, that sat in the background and we all talked together and we discussed it. It wasn't like, okay, then Terry Mosley, what do you think we do with that ramp? Or what do you think we should do with these people in angling? There was a group of people, like a forum of what they call these days. And we used to sit there and discuss all these things. It wasn't just my aim to take on the world. And so we decided that what we'd do is we'd, we'd actually get our organisation that we've got this group of people and we'd form the British Disabled Angle Association and give it a title that represented the job that we did. So we believe that we represented Britain, whether it was Northern Ireland, whether it was Wales, etc. And what we did was like, we were about disability, we were about angling and we were associated to a number of other things. So that name sort of like sat there and said, take me. So we not only took the name and adopted the name, but we also registered as a registered charity and has been a registered charity with the Charity Commission now for 15 years. So the name now is known by quite a lot of people. It's not known by quite a lot of other people, including a lot of people that's in planning departments, councils and stuff like that, because they've no interest in it until it's needed. Well, we can only carry on doing what we're doing and, Hopefully more and more people will get to know who we are. And if we can help people, then great. There was a number of things that happened in between 2001 and 2002. I did more work with British Disabled Angling Association and other companies now with doing um, sponsorships such as Tarmac. I started making connections with the government, talking about disability, but talking about disability in an angling context. There's enough people out there that was doing my job in general life. There was enough campaigners that could talk about disability in that context. They didn't need me to join their barrage of supporters. But there was nothing in in angling. So I needed to see if there was like-minded people or it was just me that was going on a, a rant. And was there other people that wasn't so happy? So we started to increase what we did in back in the early 2000s. So these governments then started saying, oh, yeah, we need to know what, you know, BDA does. So it went from Department of Decal, Department of uh, Agricultural Fisheries, etc., and the sporting bodies. There were, there were so many different ones that contacted us, and now I've got our 
details. We went back to Portugal, 2001, which we didn't win a medal this time, but uh, we still went back in the international scene. There was a new scheme run by Sport England in 2002 called the Sporting Champions Scheme. I was surprised that when I contacted them to see how it worked, they'd never considered angling or anybody as a sporting champion. So basically what it is, it's somebody that people can look up to. So the kids can look up to and aspire to and say, I would like to be like that person. So you had all the boxers, you had all the athletes, you had all the hurdlers and sprinters and the marathon people. They were all lined up. You had Tanny Gray Thompson and a whole host of people in sport. And angling? Nothing. The governing bodies had never even attempted to contact them to say, can we be on there? Because we've got Alan Scott on, we've got Bob Nudd, we've got this, we've got that, we've got that. Nothing. Nothing at all. But the amount of exposure they got in Sport England was huge. It was worldwide. Angling. So I decided that, right, if you're not going to do it, I'll do it. So I put my name forward, they took my CV, and that was it. From then on, I stayed on this champions list and people would phone me from the details that was on the website for Sport England and ask me questions about disability, how they could get into angling, how they could form a club, how they could contact their local waters because they can't get on there, their club won't let them join or do this, that and the other. They're basically being discriminated against. But the club and the fisheries, etc., in their defence, they didn't know they were discriminating against these people. And the people that was disabled themselves, they thought they did know. Because they were a club and because they were a business, they should know. But back in those days, that wasn't the case. So uh, it was strange to be part of that. Really good, but strange to be part of that. And a proud moment to be a sporting champion for England. 2002 also saw me as uh, English Federation of Disability Sport, EFDS as it's called. He's still the representative body based at Loughborough University now for all disability sport. And at the time, they hadn't got a contact with angling again. So I pushed forward and just said, can we have a representative person nominated? It doesn't have to be me, but we need to make sure that angling is actually recognised as a sport. 2003, I was sort of like upgraded, I suppose, to an angling workshop member. Basically, what that meant was at that time that What they wanted to do was get a group of people with various disabilities, me as a wheelchair user, somebody else who got visual impairments, etc. And what they wanted to do was get us all together and have a brainstorming session and turn around and say, right, okay, then what can we do about things? How can we put them right? What advice and what guidance can we give? Rather than chain ourselves to the fence to the House of Commons and daub ourselves in paint, we thought this was the, the way to go forward. So we started this angling workshop. Um, 2003, again, people were asking me and saying, what sort of qualifications have you got? How come it's you all the time? And you can understand that people get upset sometimes about what you do and how come it's always you and stuff. I understand that. It's like, it's not jealousy, but sometimes it can be, why isn't it me? So I thought, well, I need what I need to do is I need to put something behind what I say in, in a qualification and training mode. So in 2003, I became a level two angling coach with the governing body. I also took various qualifications with Sport England, such as coaching disabled performers. I took equity in your coaching, first aid in the workplace, 
good practice and child protection certificates and so on, even to becoming a tutor and an assessor, the same as you would in any other sport. So I'd now got the qualifications. So if somebody asked me and said, how come you can say these things? It's because I have the training at the back of me through that whole 2003 period. That's where I had to amass the training to be able to say, well, I do it for this because I have this qualification. And I'm able to say that. And if you've got the same qualification other than life experience, then you have the same right to say that as well because you've got something to back it up. And that quashed all the doubters saying that it was just like an ego trip. It was like, well, I don't really want to go and do an examination, a qualification, a training, etc. Bloody, bloody, blah, you carry on with it. So it dispelled the myths about that I was just doing it for myself and just banned the name around, which is a bit crazy, but some people just think like that. During 2004 through to... Uh, Quite a lot happened. I started representing the Environment Agency more on disability, the governing bodies, not just the coarse angling, but game fishing and sea fishing as the joint angling governing bodies. They would ask me to represent disability and be their advisor on on those sort of issues. The NEC, the National Exhibition Centre in Birmingham, an organisation called Dreamstore, they contacted us and said, we're moving into angling, we need to run an exhibition we don't want to get this exhibition wrong. We don't want to be upsetting disabled people when they come in because we haven't thought about their access and how they use our facilities. So if you could come in and advise us what we need to do with ramps and low-level counters and all that sort of thing, we were absolutely brilliant. And I worked for them for quite some time. Once again, none of this is sort of paid. You know, there's, there's no much of value at the end of it, which is why people never you know, sort of don't understand that you do this for a labour of love. And to change things for the people of the future, you don't do it for a financial gain. And I don't understand how people don't understand that you can do that for nothing. They're very sceptical and think, well, you must do it for something. I don't understand that. That's not the way I work. I get looked after by the army. The army looks after me. I look after other people. And I just don't understand people's uh, way of thinking. Everything started to gel from that 2004, working with the governing bodies. The Disability Rights Act... I contacted them on a number of issues that we had in angling and people would come forward and say, listen, we've got this problem and that problem. Is that legal? Is that not legal? So I contacted the Disability Rights Act as it was back in 95, sort of 2005 here. And they said, well, we've got nobody in angling that we've ever consulted with. We've got all these disability groups and all these disability sports and nobody really give angling two thoughts. That's quite concerning. Even today to think that nobody actually gave angling a thought back in those days, and so they wasn't included in how you would make improvements onto a fishery or what a fishery's legal duties were and stuff like that. So from those contacts that I made, angling actually got highlighted, and I was brought in there to advise them on the angling aspects about what would or what could occur on a fishery connected to discrimination, etc. Which was, yeah, that was, it was quite a big move in my terms. Other people non-disabled people, if you like, would probably sort of say, well, don't really know what that means, but it was quite a big step for a pun. The Environment Agency was asking us in 2004 as well if we could start looking at what they'd already got in terms of their spend. I mean, if we imagine that, I suppose at the moment, 
hypothetically thinking about all the money that they bring in from rod licenses and in this period of time now it's probably about 26 million pounds or something like that based on 1.5 million licenses now some of that money should get spent back into the projects now what they asked me to do was to have a look at what projects they got and what money they'd spent beforehand and tell them what we thought of their projects and the main question that we found at the time was basically they hadn't really got any projects because they didn't know where they were so they asked us then to be the advisors on their work as in can you look at our old work so it's like an audit of fisheries that had had money spent on them in the past whether it was by the old national resource authority or whether it was by the new environment agency whether it was sport england money or lottery money or we just become the advisors and my role if you like was the uh, chief consultant on that part for the environment agency and continues to do so and continues to be in in that role and i train other people to do the same job as i do i've got two or three other people now out of a team of 14 that, that uh, are quite capable of going out and doing the same job as i am so that was quite a move and we can talk about that sort of subject in a, in a later light the fact that the environment agency at that time back in 2004 had asked us if we could like do some of these access audits it led us to say well hang on again once again this is something else we need training for because we're not just looking for our own impairment now as in being in a wheelchair etc we have to look at everybody's and we have to understand the law etc so we took training in london and we got uh, or i got first an access audit qualification and that was followed by a consultant's qualification and then once I knew how it worked, I put eight of my team through it as well. We, we, we raised the funds for ourselves and we did that. I became a, a disability awareness tutor in 2005. And this was a lot of councils, governments, environment agency, and they wanted to know what it was like. Not to know what the person's sort of illness was like, say, you know, if they got a, you know, a head injury or they've got multiple sclerosis or whatever. They didn't want to know what that was like. They wanted to know what it was like for a disabled person to come across the barriers. So I had to devise a course with my colleagues that would allow people to understand what the barriers were, getting out of a car, getting onto a car park, going into a building, going down to a fishing ramp, if these things wasn't there or what's currently there. So we devised a whole new workshop that we could take out on the road, which was at that time funded by the Environment Agency to train their people to have a better awareness disability. And that was quite a proud moment for us. The 2005 time took a leap. So we had contact with the uh, LOX agency, which is equivalent to our sort of environment agency in England, over in Northern Ireland. And they've got quite a big catchment area. They just wanted everything. But they wanted everything then and there, to the point where I would prefer to work for Northern Ireland than I would for England. Because in Northern Ireland you got things done, and in England you didn't. Going back to the lip service thing, you don't get that in Northern Ireland. If Northern Ireland say they're going to do something, they actually do it. But they do it there and then. And you don't get that same sort of thing in England. It's sort of like, you tell us, we'll think about it, we'll forget about it, and then we might not do it after anyway. But it was quite interesting to see how the different nations work. And England works different than Wales. They work different to Northern Ireland. 
we've had some working with Scotland, but I would work for Northern Ireland first, Wales second, England last. And that's, uh, <laughs> that, that's the way I, I have to prioritize that. And it's never been the change since back in the 2000s when I first had contact. 2007, I become a, a sports tutor, a United Kingdom coaching certificate, a certified tutor. I also was an assessor. That's in any sport. That's not just angling. I can tutor or assess any sport as long as I know the game rules and how that all works. I can teach somebody else about that particular game, including angling. I can also assess whether if they're going to be a coach, how good they've done and achieved in, in a particular course. So I'm able to do that as well. But I focused on angling because that's basically what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that the governing bodies of the day were doing their job correctly and they weren't just machine turning out coaches that really didn't know what they were doing and the point of fact what happened was we did find out that some of the coaches under their own admittance weren't up to the standard they should have been but we wouldn't have known that unless myself and a few of the other guys had actually gone and become tutors and assessors not just coaches we didn't realize they were just like turning out coaches to be coaches just to make the numbers up and tick the boxes 2008 wasn't a bad year for us. I started working as a, a national access auditor for the Environment Agency in England and Wales. 2008, we actually started the Accessible Fisheries Wards scheme. So what we did was we designed something that allowed the fishery to be proud and wanted to do something. So we recognised them by giving them an award. So we would have a list of things that they had to aspire to. And if they aspired to in a realistic way we would give them an award, then that would be bronze, silver, gold and platinum awards for the work they carried out on the fishery. And we would physically go and check them and give them a certificate and photos of the paper and stuff like that. And that process has continued and it's worked up until the last couple of years where we've sort of uh, advanced that now. And instead of having the old award scheme, we've got an approval. So we've got an approved fishery scheme now. So if they pass a BDA minimum standard, they can be approved and, you know, we would say, yeah, BDA has visited the fishery. They've met our sort of minimum requirements and we approve them as a, an accessible fishery. May not be perfect, but at least they've met the minimum requirements. So that was quite a good year, 2008, for us. We had uh, some strange calls in 2008 at the same time. Well, this is where we expanded into Europe and we had expats in Spain. They were contacting us and saying that they were building these carp fisheries in Spain and could we go over there and have a look and help them develop. And then the same thing happened in France. And this is all down to the internet. People see who you are and they email you and, and the internet has become this massive giant that controls your life. But at the same time, it maximises your exposure as well. So we started working further afield and it wasn't at that time it was France or Spain. I mean, now it includes the USA and Russia and Poland, you name it, we get people contacting us asking us not about access specifically. It might be some guys lost an arm or, or lost their use of their limbs in an accident or something, and where can they get the equipment to overcome that? And that's where we come on board. ROSPA in 2009, which was the um, Royal Society for the Prevention of Accidents, they teamed up with us because we came up with some platform designs that we believe would be a good way to start for producing a standard safe platform designed for people to fish on, whether it was on the bank or whether it was over the water. And we held a meeting between us 
And after several meetings, we'd come up together with this platform or set of seven designs that have now been approved for general release. So anybody who wants to know how to build a, a platform for access or universal access, whether it be disabled families or whatever, these platforms have been approved by Rosper and ourselves. So that was quite a big thing at that day. 2009, we run a thing called Kayak Development, Kayak Ability. We had guys fishing in kayaks. It's not all about just fishing on the bank. It's actually fishing about on water, whether you're in a boat or whether you're on the sea or wherever. So we developed this kayak ability program and literally got kayaks and uh, we powered them by batteries. The steering run off a, a watch. So you could turn the watch and it would turn the steering on the back. They would have rods coming out the back. Of it. And there was like a whole sort of access things. And we, we, we had sponsorship and stuff like that. That's ongoing. You know, that's still being worked on. The knock-on effect of that was that the Angling Trust then said, right, we want to do more things for kayaking. So by us planting the seed allowed the governing bodies to take notice and, and move on with that. So we had, no, had a bit of a break from 2009 till uh, about 2012. Not from angling, but from public life and training. My duty, my daily work was so intense um, with BDAA and with all these people that wanted all this work that I didn't have time to go out and do any new stuff there. But then the Angling Trust in 2013 said, we need to get together and we need to sort out angling and we have no disabled advisors, would you come on and A, devise the advisory board, and then B, find out who would be useful on that team, and then move forward to try and put right a lot of the wrongs that's happened in the past. And so that was the time when I thought that the uh, it was just going to be lip service again, and it's turned out not to be. It's turned out to be quite successful, but not the speed and rate that I would want to go. So. I suppose that's an introduction to what I've been able to achieve. It's not like a CV of like some of its qualifications and some of its experience. So I just like to say it's a lifetime achievement and that's what I've been able to do regardless of the disability that I've had at the same time. To do what is obviously a very important subject full justice, this interview both requires and will be given as much time as it takes. That said, I'm very conscious of the time we've already taken getting ourselves from the start of it all through to present, which is 2014. On top of that, I'm also aware of the average person's attention span, so what I propose to do at this point is call a temporary halt and continue discussing the remainder of what we have planned as a separate standalone entity later. Mm -hmm.